1: With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson.
0: Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Albert Kaufman of Farm My Yard to talk about his experience with urban farming activism. Albert is a longtime Pacific Northwest activist. He's worked on urban farming, forestry, quality of life issues, and more since moving to the region in 1994. Albert is a huge proponent of helping people find their way to the garden. Welcome to the show today, Albert. Albert. Thank you very much, Greg. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now?
2: Well, I have been involved in some sort of gardening and planting uh, for a long time. I grew up like many people in the suburbs of the United States and had a lawn and and you know, cut the lawn down mm. week after week for the $3 that my parents would pay me. This was back in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh-huh. And eventually I moved to a kibbutz in Israel Whoa! Um, as was part of my path. And I ended up living on a giant communal farm for a year. I worked with cows. I drove tractors. I fed the cows. I sang to the cows. I uh, learned about other aspects of large-scale farming that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 19, and it had quite, it made quite an impression on me. I also spent a bunch of time picking watermelons, picking avocados, and being in orchards, uh, picking lemons and, and oranges and grapefruits. So that was quite a impact on me, being a suburban kid from New Jersey, uh-huh. suddenly being in the middle of the desert and learning about irrigation and growing food. After that, I switched to living in New York City, where I didn't really have much contact with growing food at all for a couple of years. But in the summers, I was often out and about and traveling in the countryside of the United States. I hitchhiked across country a couple of times. Really? Uh, went to the Rainbow Gathering um, in 1981 and spent a lot of time outdoors that summer and uh-huh. got to visit a lot of interesting places around the country. And then eventually, I moved to the Pacific Northwest in 1994, and I would say that's when um, I started really getting involved in community gardening. Seattle has a pea patch program, and I dove into that, and also the tree planting program that they have there, where they give out free street trees to uh, people in the neighborhoods, whoever wants them, and that's the way that they've been building up their uh, canopy in Seattle over the years. So, that was really when I first got started in sort of like large scale projects uh-huh. and, you know, got tempted by the idea of really having a huge impact.
0: Nice. Yeah. So,
2: you went and spent how long on a kibbutz? I was there for a year, 1979, 1980, the school year. Uh-huh. It was kind of like a gap year program, even though back then we didn't have a name for it like that. Right. Yeah. I lived on kibbutz, Lim. Uh, in the Negev Desert, about uh, 45 minutes from Beersheva, about two hours, I guess, from Tel Aviv, maybe a little bit shorter. But it was pretty remote place. Was, you know, kibbutz, uh, kibbutzim can be right along the main road, or they can be off down some road somewhere as well. And this had 600 adults and uh, 250 milking cows um, and just, you know, acre after acre of uh, crops surrounding it in a big circle.
0: So you were growing food for the the community, the kibbutz, or for the surrounding area?
2: Oh, the food was for, uh, probably much of it was for export. Uh-huh. Uh, we were growing things like potatoes and gladiolas and oranges. My guess is that a lot of it left the country, but definitely a lot of it stayed on the kibbutz as well. And that really impacted me, um, you know, seeing food grown and then, and milk You know, harvested from the cows, and then that milk being brought directly into the kitchen, um, the kitchen, fresh, unpasteurized. I mean, that was pretty amazing. Eggs from the from the hen house. You know, ten thousand chickens. Oh
0: my gosh! Yeah, ten thousand chickens. What does that sound like?
2: It's pretty loud when you get up close to it, or if you're inside of it. I'll bet. uh, I had a job for a little while where I was the guy who went around to all of the different work sites and picked up the food from the different sites. So like I would go to the chicken house and they would give me a certain amount of eggs and I would go to the cow shed and I would get the milk and then I would bring that all back to the kitchen. And I drove around in this tiny little Massey Ferguson tractor Uh that was, you know, just a tiny little thing. Uh, But It was was really kind of a fun job. I got to drive around the kibbutz on a tiny tractor.
0: Nice. So, yeah. for those for those of our listeners that don't know what a kibbutz is, kind of fill us in on that, because it's a really fascinating story.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, way back when, in the 1940s, there was a movement, uh, There, were, many Jews were relocating to what was then Palestine, uh-huh. um, or, you know, for many people, still think of it as Palestine. And people were relocating there, and a lot of the people that were coming from Europe... Had learned about they they you know envisioned this dream that they would go to live in Israel that they would start a Zionist state and that it would have to do with farming uh-huh. and so there were people who went over who uh, cleared swamps there were there were already people who knew how to grow food um, and then the kibbutz was also a sort of strategic move it was a way of capturing land the kibbutz was placed often in a in a sector where no one really had like clear ownership. And in the Uh middle of the night, boom, a kibbutz would spring up. And Uh and all it needed to consist of was a tower, a fence, and uh, I think maybe one structure. And then once that was there, then like according to law, I'm thinking British law is my guess, Uh um, the next day, suddenly, boom, then that kibbutz was an established legal thing, and people could move there and people could you know start to um, grow food or you know just build community, whatever it was. And so there was a lot of like idealism and there was a lot of idealistic socialists who moved over to uh, the land, and mm-hmm. many of them, you know, died clearing swamps, and many of them, had, you know, were like tailors or butchers or uh, academics uh-huh. and had no idea what the heck they were doing. They didn't know one of a shovel from another. In fact, a lot <laughs> of early Israeli humor uh-huh. is around the kibbutzniks and how, you know, they just didn't really know what they were doing. But what they managed to do eventually was become the agricultural Sector for Israel, you know, and they were also like a big part of the labor um, party of Israel, which Uh was the leading party in Israel for many years. It was very socialist. It was very progressive left wing. And unfortunately, over the years, both the kibbutz movement and the labor party have really withered in Israel as other forces have come forward. And that's not the Israel um, that I knew right that's really changed a lot over the years and in fact the kibbutzim now that's the plural for kibbutz is kibbutzim have mostly transitioned to for-profit entities and so in the beginning what, what it was was you know everybody would work and then when it was available that everyone could get something everyone was on an equal footing so this you know the the person who worked um, doing the laundry, got the same income as the veterinarian, uh-huh. as, got the same income as the as the school teacher. Mm-hmm. And now that's changed. And, you know, people get paid sort of more like we do in the United States, depending on what that job actually pays. Right. But it's a really interesting model. And, and they tried a lot of different experiments. Kids stayed in kids' houses. They didn't um, grow up with their parents. So hmm. there was all sorts of interesting experiments going on in in a lot of different ways and so you know it was a learning ground and I'm really glad I got exposure to it
0: sounds quite extraordinary yeah so you've been quite involved with community gardens in the Seattle area Uh, have you plugged into this Seattle's pea
2: patch effort yeah so I lived in Seattle from 94 to 2002 Mm. and then I moved to Portland Oh yes I I guess I knew that sorry (laughs) that's okay Once I, in Seattle, I ended up living in an area called Beacon Hill. Uh And Beacon Hill at the time, and continues to be kind of an immigrant neighborhood. uh, A lot of people from the Hmong area, Vietnamese, Hispanic, Chinese. And then, you know, slowly while I was there, it started to gentrify and become more white. But it was a pretty interesting neighborhood. There's about 40,000 people who live there. Um, the neighborhood went through a planning phase in 1998, where we looked at like you know what do we have, what's all around us, and we did some planning. We ended up envisioning a uh, food forest. At the time, it was really more that we were thinking about an orchard, but it's become now the Beacon Food Forest and Jefferson Park in Seattle. Oh, this uh, is- that was something that I. Was part of the scheming and dreaming of that now has come to fruition. That's, um, that, we also, yeah, go ahead.
0: Hold on. That's that's the the food forest in Seattle that everybody's talking about, right?
2: That's right. Yeah. Wow. And back in 1998, we reached out to people in the neighborhood to see what they wanted the future of this giant. Uh, I think it's almost 200 acres park, which is mostly golf courses. Um, But it has a beautiful view of the Olympic Peninsula, of the uh, Olympic National Park, the mountains there, Uh and also of downtown Seattle. It's a really fun place to watch the fireworks and things. Anyway, um, there were two reservoirs at the time, and because of the feds coming in and saying that you had to either cover your reservoirs or get rid of them, one of the reservoirs in the park was covered. That's now right at the edge of the food forest. And then one of the other, uh, and I think that's become ball fields. And then the other reservoir was removed, and that's become this beautiful 15-acre meandering park. But all around the whole the whole area, we we did a lot of planting over the years. And then the community um, garden that I was a part of was also in that same neighborhood. Right. And, you know, I was just part of this group of, like, I don't know, 15 people. We had a huge plot with irrigated—it was irrigated— easy parking Mm -hmm. and uh, you know nothing all that special but it brought together a lot of really interesting people from various backgrounds and that really turned me on to uh, the idea of community gardens and at the same time I was learning a lot about um, planting trees and uh, uh, Seattle uh, had At the time, I don't know if it's still continuing, but the Department of Transportation basically had money for free street trees. And so (laughs) I made it my job to just go house to house and sell these trees. Hi, would you like free street trees planted in front of your house by volunteers? It wasn't a real hard sell, but sometimes it was, you know, living in a neighborhood where people didn't necessarily speak English. And it's culturally not uh, everybody's uh, ball of wax to have trees planted in front of their house, for instance. So sometimes we'd plant a tree and the homeowner would just cut it down. Oh yeah. Because, you know, oh that feng shui was wrong. Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but that led to while I was there, I think I, I was involved in planting about two thousand trees. Wow. And uh I when I go back to that neighborhood and I walk around I just I'm so proud. And I personally didn't plant those trees, but I certainly had a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah, no and, kidding.
2: Uh, and then, you know, I've continued doing that down in Portland. I've been the neighborhood coordinator for Friends of Trees, which is the local uh, group here in town that does a lot of the organizing of tree planting. And um, I've also just been really encouraging people to plant uh, fruit and nut trees because mm-hmm. it just seems like a good way to go. So we had a food policy council here in town uh, that my girlfriend was part of. And that's how I learned about the city's hesitancy to encourage people to plant fruit and nut trees and it just continues to this day even though we have some approved trees they they don't make a big you know they're not very encouraging and so it really has to come from the uh, people and so that you know another like bandwagon that I've gotten on
0: yeah so that's cool on the tree planting and I want to really know the story quickly about how you got from Seattle to Portland tell us that
2: sure well I had been part of the high tech um, boom in the Seattle area. Oh in yeah. The, the 90s leading into 2000. Uh-huh. And you know, Seattle's a really great town. There's a lot of awesome things to do in the area, but every time I'd come to Portland, I'd always just have a fantastic time and uh... I would always leave smiling and eventually I started to wonder what it would be like to live here and so I decided to move and just moved to Portland in 2002. Um I also was a frequent visitor of a place called Brighton Bush which is in the mountains southeast of Portland. Oh and I it's this beautiful intentional community uh with hot springs and hot wow. pools around the property. It's an old growth forest. Why didn't you uh, move there? Well, the, you know, life is long. I'm not. We're not done with that conversation yet. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Always a possibility. Perfect. Um, the winters there are a little tough because ah. it's, uh, you know, rainy just like it is in the rest of Oregon. But then you add in a few more thousand feet of elevation so you oh, have right. much snow and darkness and totally. it's in the woods. and yeah. So that's part of it. But, you know, I'm also a bit of a city kid. I've been living in cities most of my life. And oh, yeah. That's where I find... My joy. Um, but anyway, I decided to move to Portland and mm-hmm. relocated here in 2002. And then I never really ever looked back to nice. um, Seattle. You know, I've lived in New York City. I've lived in Munich. And both of those places I still think about really fondly. And uh-huh. Seattle, for some reason, just has not really stayed on the radar for me, especially now with the changes that have come since I left. I mean, it's really gotten much more built up. Uh-huh. Uh, there's just a lot more traffic congestion. It was already bad when I left, even though I am a car-free person. You know, it affects everybody when there's a lot of congestion. Oh yeah. So, I um, yeah, moved down here and just really felt like I live in a city, but it's a small town kind of feeling. Now that's changing here. It is starting to feel like a lot of other places, mm-hmm. but um, I, yeah, I'm just really very pleased with my choice and have made nice. quite a lot of uh, good friends and the community here that I'm a part of is really awesome and. Yeah. Cool. So you have a
0: project that you started in Portland Mm -hmm. called Farm My Yard. And that's actually how we originally met, is uh, through kind of threading uh, a conversation around Farm My Yard. So could you tell us about that? Sure.
2: You know, I think there's a lot of people who are excited about the idea of Urban farming. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no question about it. It's coming on like gangbusters, and you've been a part of it, and it's very inspiring what you've been up to. Thank you. Um, and I just, you know, having been part of the tech community, I kept seeing ways that we could move things along faster. Mm-hmm. I helped uh, uh, Freecycle get started in 2003. Oh. Oh, wow. um, I came back from Burning Man. I'm a big fan of Burning Man. I go every year. Uh-huh. And I came back that year, you know, having once again dipped into the gifting economy where you walk around for a week and no one's selling anything and no one's bartering for anything and everybody's just giving of what they have and gifting each other with things. And it's really quite moving experience. It's, it's It takes a few years really just to even understand what the heck is going on. You always want to reciprocate and and always feel guilty about taking something from somebody, but eventually you can sort of get it. I came back from it in 2003, read a a Utney reader article about a group down in Tucson, Arizona doing something called FreeCycle. Oh, right. And I looked it up and I saw, you know, there's a thousand people on a Yahoo group doing FreeCycle. And I came away from that going, Oh, my God, like that's perfect for Portland, for one thing. Uh-huh. And uh, after I started the Portland one, a few days later, I realized, why don't we just template this and go crazy? So I started, I don't even know, like 10 different groups around the world. The one in London, New York, San Francisco, places where I knew people so that eventually I would be able to encourage a friend to, to moderate the group. Right. The one in Portland went from zero to 300 in a couple of days. I ended up getting some press um, from the Oregonian, uh, and (laughs) then it went to 3,000 people, and Uh it started to really boom, and then I got another article in the Oregonian, and then the other ones around the country started to pick up, and the whole thing just sort of took off, and now there's millions of people doing it. Um, There's a free section on Craigslist. There's uh, Rooster, which is a new up-and-coming organization out of uh, Berkeley, who they're they're taking FreeCycle and they're making it more like nextdoor.com. So make, just adding in more social you know, connectability. And so um, having been a part of that, I realized, oh well, there's gotta be a way to connect urban farmers with people who have property. Yeah. And so the way that it came to my mind was, let's just call it Farm My Yard, i.e. you farm my yard. I'm gonna put up a sign in my front yard. It's gonna say Farm My Yard. The person could come up to my door, knock on the door, and we get a conversation started. And soon after that, I realized that there were already some great agreements out there that people could download off of a website and customize and have ready for the time when they might need to, you know, take that step right. and, and coordinate um, the exchange, whatever it was going to be. And that's led to just all sorts of things, you know, putting up a website and sort of putting a stake in the ground or a sign in the ground. Uh I made signs, I've made T-shirts, I've got a Facebook fan page that's pretty active with about nine moderators, you being one of them, or admins. Uh Um, And, you know, it's just been a really fun ride. And... I mean, I'm not out. I mean, I am out there personally farming other people's yards, and other people are sort of farming my yard. And there's a lot of like food exchange going on and seedling exchange. I just went to a really awesome neighborhood seedling exchange the other day. Uh, we've been on TV and, you know, it's gotten certain, all sorts of different like aspects of it. But I think, you know, one of the really interesting parts of it is it, that it's an idea. You know, it's a meme. It is not a – it has not turned into what some would like to see, which I think is coming, which is more of like an app, you know, which is more let's use the web for what it's made for and, you know – People can post on looking for this, and somebody else can um, fulfill it, or you know, people can connect that way. I've not done that, and so it has really just sort of continued to be this DIY movement. And I get um, contacted all the time from people all over the world saying, "Hey, you know, is there farm my yard in my neck of the woods?" And I just have to respond back, "Farm my yard is yours. Like, just take this and run with it." Right. And so I want that to be really clear with people that it's not a service that someone can use it is it is inspiring other services that Uh are coming along i just got contacted from a guy down in berkeley who said hey um you know can i take what you're doing and and turn it into an app and i'm like please by all means you know and somebody has come along and started to make an app for me, and I, we got a ways down the road. It was from someone from Czechoslovakia, and then he sort of disappeared. And I realized, you know, I, I'm just doing what I can with it, and it's not my full-time job. It is just a passion and an interest, and I'm excited about it. And, and whoever wants to use whatever's on the website for their own purposes and run with it, that they have full 100% permission to do so.
0: Kind of an open source thing.
2: Exactly. Yes.
0: Fantastic. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious to dig in deeper on something I'm on right now. I'm on the freecycle.org site and I'm on uh-huh. farmmyyard.org. I want to unpack for our listeners, maybe the process, the thought process from going from a thought I, you know, just the thought to actually putting up systems around mm-hmm. this stuff. You're, you're, you're a tech guy, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a farmer in Phoenix, an urban farmer in Phoenix, and I've been doing this a very long time, but really what I'm inspired to do is to inspire people to do this for themselves and to go out and do epic stuff in the world.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: both of these projects are pretty epic. Thank you. So you're welcome. Absolutely. So how does one go from, you know, a thought to getting something like this started from the technology end?
2: mm-hmm well it's funny i my mind went in two different directions when you asked the question one was i also have a website called do something right do something today to write the world and i think that's just a basic philosophy on my part that you just that if we all did that if we all just did whatever it took to write the world you know things would be righted things would be improved uh-huh. um in terms of like The tech side, I mean, you register a domain or you talk it over with friends over a couple of beers and you figure out what's the idea and, you know, what you're going to actually do. You actually just have to take action. Um, In terms of the Farm My Yard idea, I got got a bunch of people. uh, We got these real estate signs that someone had and stakes and we had a painting party and we made fun Farm My Yard signs. You Uh know, we actually took it. And we ran with it, and we created these signs, and it made like a little bit of hubbub. Uh-huh. Um, and I've always thought, you know, if I just would print up a thousand signs and hand them out at farmers markets, the, you know, this thing would just really take off. Imagine a neighborhood that had a hundred signs in it. Oh no, you kidding! Know, that was that was inviting people nearby who lived in apartments to come yep. and do some farming. I mean, that would be it. And when that happens, then you know things will change. And I I have not been willing to like take that step um, personally I've thought about doing a Kickstarter to do it uh, but I've just you know, I've sort of been busy um, farming and and answering questions and doing it at the level that I'm doing it and um, in terms and... of the free cycle thing it was really just uh, copying what was already being done uh-huh. and templating it and just running with it um, and people are doing that with farm my yard also there's farm my yard branches. Around the world, these people in Cairns, Australia, keeps contacting me and saying um, how excited they are to, uh, you know, be doing Farm My Yard where they live and like, you know, power to them. Yeah. Um, And Philadelphia, I've had people from New York, Philadelphia, a number of people. I think another thing that really uh, is a great organizing tool that people under um, value is email. I'm a huge, that's what I do for work. I'm an email marketing expert uh-huh. uh, for small businesses. But it's also great for small causes or for large causes. Mm-hmm. You know, email is the way that we are connected with one another. It's a great way to get the word out about things. I'm And, you know, the thing I talked about earlier about wanting to preserve Portland's uh, old majestic trees. They're, we're having a developing boom right now where people are coming in, buying houses, smushing them getting rid of the trees and like building giant boxes. I'm sure yeah. it's happening where you live as oh, well. Oh yeah.
0: In my neighborhood.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, to stop that from happening, it, 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 it you know, unless you're going to get everybody in your neighborhood to start running for office, which is a great way to go. Um, Coordinating people via email lists is a fantastic method of getting the word out and doing work. That's also what I did. You know, that's basically what Freecycle is it's a large email list. It's the same thing mm. with Farm My Yard. Uh-huh. Part of my goal is just to continue building that list so that if and when. You know, something shifts, or there's an opportunity that people can, you know, take advantage of. Then, boom! I can reach out to them, and I know you're no you're no novice around email marketing, so oh, yeah. um, you know what I'm talking about in yeah. this realm. Well, it's and it, it's it, these are all really great tools to help
0: us spread the word. And and I was going to say a moment ago, plant seeds. You're just planting mm-hmm. seeds,
2: right? One aspect about Farm My Yard too that I haven't really talked about. But, I think, as relevant is I also see it as a jobs program. You know there's a lot of urban farmers who oh, are yeah. showing off their stuff, like in Detroit, uh-huh. where they're saying, "Hey, we can put people back to work, growing food for themselves and for the community, and I think farm my yard is just that as well. I've had people come and farm you know ten yards around them. And make enough. Uh, they're they're earning money from that, or uh-huh. they're earning food, or they're earning goodwill, whatever it is they're earning. You know, plus they're keeping in shape. They're you know staying out of trouble, out of gangs. I see this could be the teen program of the century. You know, any teen that wants to make some money, uh-huh. uh, start farming other people's yards. You know, then the, the other people they don't have to pay for lawn maintenance. They're yep. getting food. They're saving money. Uh, the noise from leaf blowers and weed whackers and uh, lawn mowers goes way down, mm-hmm. and the team gets skills that they can uh, use all their life, and they can make money at it. Yeah. You know, there is money to be made by young people because who has the energy to really do urban farming? It's young people. I'm 54. I, there's a, certain, <laughs> there's a <laughs> certain amount that I can do, yep. and I'm excited to do, and it will yeah. help me stay fit and things, but. And, you know, I'm glad to share the knowledge that I have. But mm-hmm. in terms of the actual labor of doing this week in and week out, you know, the younger, the better. I wish that young kids in schools were being taught urban farming. Yeah. Because, uh, like, I just watched it the other day. I just want to throw this in here. Please. I, I just I watched, um, you know, I, uh, there's a little school near the house that I'm in at the moment. And there's a there's a beautiful community garden at the end of the field. And in the middle of the field, there's a the soccer field. And I watched, like, adults – And they're little kids, you know, with the kids running back and forth on a beautiful day, kicking a ball around. Uh And here's this beautiful community garden, you know, waiting for the adults in the neighborhood basically to come and and grow food. Uh And I thought to myself, God, do we have our priorities wrong or what? Like these kids should be picking they should be planting and picking food and learning how to grow food and getting some exercise through that and then when they're done great play a game of soccer but i couldn't am- i couldn't believe like how much potential is being wasted i mean these parents all drove uh-huh. their kids to this soccer field the kids are all you know they i mean the exercise that they're getting that's fantastic don't right. get me wrong but I really think our priorities are screwed up when, like, that's the the main thing is driving your kids around so they can go play soccer. And then, you know, they come home and they play on their iPad. It's right. like we really need to shift that. <laughs> Heard that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you mentioned in our pre-conversation about a uh, cultivation classic that you went to. Yes. Tell us about that.
2: Oh, I would love to. So just recently Oregon legalized marijuana uh-huh. and uh, right now it is uh, you know available to anyone 21 or older and um, you can buy flour what is what how it's known or or just marijuana and now June 2nd we are about to everybody all adults in in Oregon will be also able to buy just about everything else like oils and tinctures and oh. um, edibles and things like that they've kind of held back on that so I went to an event that was sponsored by our local newspaper, the Willamette Week, uh-huh. and also one of the local dispensaries called Pharma. And uh, uh, okay. full disclosure, I know the owners of Pharma, and they're wonderful, smart people. And so I went to this event to just you know go and see what there is to see. Uh-huh. And it was uh, it was like a collection of people who grow marijuana, people who um, make the uh, soil. Um, make all the various nutrients and things like that 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 are used. It's people who had labs that test the marijuana. And this cultivation classic was the first of its kind. It was only about growing organic marijuana. That's all it was about. There uh-huh. was no you know, no pesticides. There was a huge wow. emphasis by everybody there. My congressman was there, by the way. He's really? like the lead guy on legalizing marijuana in the United States. His name is Earl Blumenauer. Oh, I yes. Wish I've met Earl before. Every congressman in the United States uh, was even close to as amazing as he is. Yeah. He is one of the most phenomenal people. He's also been a huge proponent of biking in the United States and he's just he's great on so many issues I don't even know where to start anyway he was there Um, there was a competition um, and you know who had grown the best marijuana using you know these various practices Um, there was a huge area where people could partake if they wanted to so there Um, there were lots of samples
0: yeah the reason I wanted to ask you this question is because in in our pre-conversation you said it was amazing how much of what you learned there applied to growing food
2: Right, um, absolutely. So much of, I, I mostly, I did walk around and collect samples. Who couldn't, you know? I mean, there's just nothing uh, better than getting a, a free ice cream or a free drink um, on a hot day. There you and go. Uh, the, most of the rest of the time, I sat at, in a, you know, a group of chairs that were face forward to um, watch speakers and panelists talk about, you know, the best practices for growing organic. And it was just as much of a talk about how, you know the importance of good soil uh-huh. as it was about you know what the end product was going to be about. Right. And they kept everybody that spoke said you know any of this stuff that we're learning and we're using any of this technology can be made to grow anything better. And one of the really cool talks that that I wish uh, I had – I I took some video, but I wish I had captured a little bit more of this one. It was a guy who was uh, talking about the uh, LED technology. Uh And he said that with the new LED technology that's coming along, that the growing time for a crop could be reduced 10 to 15 days because of the new LEDs that are coming along. Uh Now, I mean, just put that in your – (laughs) <laughs> pipe and smoke it i mean that that right there to, to talk about tomatoes talk about anything that's grown indoors or in, right. a, in a greenhouse situation tomatoes cucumbers what have you if you can reduce the amount of grow uh, growing season by 10 mm-hmm. to 15 days on a crop i mean that, that could be enough to feed the next billion people not that i want to i mean i do want to feed them don't get me wrong but i, I would actually prefer if we would shrink the population that's another yeah. story there you go interesting <laughs> all right
0: yeah. So the, one of the most significant things for me about the medical marijuana movement and all of that is the amount of infrastructure, uh, just growing infrastructure. I'm not talking about just marijuana. I'm talking about food in general that has to happen in order for it to be successful. And, mm. you know, given that it's not legal to transport it from state to state. These, these industries have to go into cities and states and completely build out all the structure for, you know, growing all this stuff. And mm-hmm. so it's really helping the local food movement, I think.
2: Well, you know, what's interesting is that that's so funny, you know, I, I don't think I've ever really been a part of anything before where the game is changing so quickly yeah and you know there was a lot of talk at this event at the cultivation classic about the industry and business and the financial aspect and how are you know how's how are these companies going to do and these these other companies well our law says that everyone can grow four plants of their own oh now that it just changes the whole game yeah because instead of me having to buy anything from anybody, I can grow it myself,
0: mm, mm-hmm. and
2: so that cha- that really changes things. Now, not everybody is going to want to buy. I mean, not everyone is going to want to grow their own. You know, some people are are just fine with being lazy and shelling out ten dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever it is to get what they need. But for many people, that's just going to change this from. Uh, just like it does with beer. Uh-huh. I mean, you talk about craft beer and people oh, yeah. brewing for themselves. There's tons of people who don't spend any money, mm-hmm. um, you know, buying beer or alcohol at the local store. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Like I if I can grow an ounce, let's say, um, every month, then the need that I, let's say, you know, if I was a regular daily smoker, which I'm not, uh-huh. um, but if I was, I mean, Even an ounce a month that would be enough for me and uh, and everyone who lived around me. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's a changing um, situation, and I think that people get really wrapped up in thinking that the marijuana industry is like other industries. And I'm I'm not quite there yet. You know, I'm I'm, I think the the jury is still out exactly where this is going. Now, in some places like Colorado, it's behaving very much like a traditional industry, Industry, but in In Oregon, uh, I see something different unfolding. So we'll see where it goes. Well, there you go. Yeah. So
0: can you talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it?
2: Sure. Well, the one that comes to mind is I'm involved in a urban farming project right now Uh with uh, someone who's leading the project. And I have a tendency with this person to often uh, push back right away with, uh, you know, either questioning where they're at, um, questioning their thinking, or having a better idea, or at least, you know, questioning, and I've just really sort of recently come to realize that that's not really helping, that the person who I'm dealing with actually has thought things out, she has a really good idea for design, and um, uh, so I have just tried to hold my tongue and listen and you know unless something is about to break or fall down on top of us or <laughs> you know explode i'm just going with the, the other person's thinking and particularly because it's a woman and i think that men you know tend to not listen to women <laughs> i'm i'm probably just as guilty as the next guy For you know, treating women um, like they're not as smart, or Mm -hmm. you know, questioning them all the way. Now, I question everybody. I did software testing for twenty years. Oh yeah, there you go. Part of my job has been how do I break this? You know, Uh so it's always looking for what's wrong. So that that is a place where I feel like I have sort of failed um, in the past, and I'm trying to change my behavior. And um, so far, so good. Like I even just today in the work that we've been doing um, on a project. With uh, some grading uh, and some uh, irrigation, uh-huh. I, I, I'm i glad for the results in just listening nice. and following the lead of the woman uh, leader. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, for
0: all of our listeners, I think if we can all do something better, if it was one thing that I was going to pick, I would say listen. Right. Listen better because uh, it just, it makes us, a, I think it makes us a kinder and gentler world.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. good. Yeah.
0: So. So what do you consider your biggest success?
2: Well, you know, I have a friend, Brian, actually lives down in Phoenix near you. I wish you guys uh, had met up by now. He's he's quite an amazing thinker. I think I've put you in touch with him uh, already huh. uh, when he first moved there a couple of years ago. He's an incredible farmer or uh, I was going to say real farmer, but he, you know, he didn't farm urban farming. He was doing a couple acres out in the countryside here before he moved to Phoenix. Anyway, he's, he has, he, he's always claimed that my work with free cycle is probably the greatest accomplishment that I've, I've ever um, done just in the amount of stuff that I've probably helped keep out of landfills and the way I was yeah. just so passionate about pushing that movement forward and, and building up free cycle um, groups everywhere that Uh, made sense to me Mm -hmm. and I just really carried that torch for a couple of years and was sort of like just nonstop you know get out of my way this has to (laughs) this has to get bigger So I'd say that probably is true. And yet it's hard for me to rest on that because, you know, that was back in 2003 Um, till present. I mean, I still feel like I'm a real big fan and supporter uh, of FreeCycle, but it's not the thing that I'm working on the most right now. Um, But, yeah, I would say in my lifetime, that's probably the thing that, you know, many people will remember me for. And um, I'm very happy with that. Cool.
0: And what drives you?
2: Well, I think, you know, I grew up Jewish, I, I am Jewish, and I think the the idea of tikkun olam, which means heal the planet, got instilled in me in a very early age. I had a mentor named Lee when I was younger, and we would sit around um, and listen to Bruce Springsteen and the Grateful Dead and <laughs> play guitar and play chess. And talk about what was right and wrong, and he was really an influence on my life. At the same time, I was part of the youth movement that ended up leading uh, to my going to Israel and living on the kibbutz and being part of a labor Zionist youth movement. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, my uh, time with him, I think, was you know the thing that really instilled in me to to be a good person and to work to repair the world, mm-hmm. and I've just never stopped. You know, um, I think that combined with a couple other lucky, you know, lucky things I've I discovered sort of by accident something called co-counseling or re- re-evaluation counseling. Mm-hmm. People can learn about it at rc.org. Um it's a great tool for learning how to listen better, uh, also learning how to work on emotional stuff that has hindered you or, you know, gets in the way of being yeah. like the most zesty, amazing person that you can be. Uh-huh. So I really took to that when I heard about that in 1989, I just dove right into it and I've been active in it for about 25 years. And that helps me with activism because anytime any time anyone does anything, you know, outside of the ordinary or against the status quo. Um, boy, you better believe that people are going to push back and attack you and try yeah. to undermine you. And, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself. I have, interestingly and, uh, enough. Anybody that, that, that takes a chance, anybody that leads um, becomes a magnet for everybody else's, you know, disappointment and, and um, you know, attacks. Yeah. And co-counseling for me has been the thing that I keep returning to where I can go and get kind of recharged. Um, and keep going with what I know is right and you know stick to my guns and I hate that expression but that's that's pretty much it so there's just some of the things that have you know kept me kept me going over the years
0: so I'm all about education and I have to know is there one book that's kind of influenced you in this process
2: yeah I would say food not lawns by Heather Flores oh yes hugely influential to me Mm -hmm. you know it's funny even just the title alone uh, really says it all but if people do want I've got a link to it off of the website farmmyyard.org or people can just look it up themselves um, but it's a brilliant book it's just all about you know how do we go from lawns to growing food yeah. and that's a step that if everybody took um, even if you know I've always thought it would be fun to just have like you know people do one square foot a year If everyone in the world would just take one square foot of their yard and dig out the lawn and put in a tomato plant, Uh the place would be, (laughs) we would be a a healthier world, you know, because many people would go beyond the one square foot, but I always thought that would be a fun place to start. But definitely uh, food, not lawns is a huge influence on, on my world.
0: Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: Well, I think, you know, my guess is that a lot of the people listening to this podcast are probably, um, you know, my age or somewhere around it. And I would suggest that people find young people to mentor. Mm. Find people who are young and excited and enthusiastic and just invite them to come join you, whether you can pay them to come and help you weed. You can just invite them to a tree uh, planting and just pull them in and show them what, excites you about being involved in urban farming or tree planting or just what whatever way you're repairing the world. And I think that that is a great way to continue this tradition and to grow it yeah. because, you know, as I get older, there's only going to be so much I can do. And so, it's really time to mentor the next generations yeah. and invite them in in whatever way makes sense. And there's always there's always room for more people you know to be involved in a project I mean that's really it too is like involve lots of people if you can yeah if you can get young people, and mentor one-on-one, that's ideal. But also, if you need help and you're trying to build a hugelkultur, you know, get 20 people together and, and buy a pizza and do a <laughs> group project together. And we talked in the pre-talk a little bit about um, the village building convergence and city repair here oh, yes. in Portland. Yeah. And that's something that people should also be taking note of and and, and copying. They're, they're starting to spread out. There's one in Olympia, there's one in Sebastopol. But that would be nice if people would learn what's going on at the Village Building Convergence and take what we're doing here in Portland with that and run with it. And, and and people are welcome to come to Portland for the Village Building Convergence and participate in it. It's a great week. You'll learn a ton about building with Cobb, um, repairing intersections by painting huge mandalas on them, <laughs> and uh, you know starting community gardens. That's yeah. what, more and more a part of that uh, that effort.
0: Fantastic. So, how, do, how do we yeah. find out about that since you brought it up?
2: Sure. Cityrepair.org is a good place to start. I believe it's probably villagebuildingconvergence.org Perfect. as well. But the City Repair site... Um, is where people can learn about the Village Building Convergence. Perfect. And uh, that's just a wonderful uh, week-long event that happens every year in Portland. I think there's been something like 400 different projects around Portland <laughs> nice. that have been completed through that through volunteer that effort. It's It's one of the things that makes Portland so incredible. And I'm not encouraging people to move here. Come visit, take our tools, and make your place awesome too. Perfect.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experience with us. Albert, it's been a treat chatting with you.
2: Fantastic, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad we, uh, we've we taken the time, and, and thanks a lot for letting me share my passion. Oh, big time. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, you're welcome to visit uh, the website, farmmyyard.org. I highly recommend hopping on the email list, and if you want to write to me, that's a great way to find me and to connect.
0: Perfect.